Hello and welcome to this week's Bosscast. I'm Andrew Teacher, Managing Director at Montford Real Estate. Delighted to be joined by Simon Carter, British Land's Chief Executive Officer. Simon, brilliant to see you. Thank you for coming in. Now, lots to talk about. You, along with everybody else in the markets, had a bit of a challenging week, a bit of a challenging year. And there are some questions being asked about whether British land should still be in the city. Slightly scandalous to suggest that you shouldn't, but do they have a point, Simon Carter? Is there a point at which you have to say, city offices? No. I was going to uh, thank you, Andrew, for inviting me along, but maybe after that first question, perhaps (laughs) not. Uh, It's a great question. Uh, We think of it slightly broader than that. At the moment, what we're seeing in the market is customers are wanting the best space. There's this concept of the best versus the rest. We've come out of COVID. Pretty much every business in the country has done that workplace survey. The conclusion is they probably want a little bit less space going forward because of hybrid working, but they're really focused on quality because it's about attracting and retaining talent. So we've got our three campuses that are up and running today across London, Paddington in the West, Regent's Place in Midtown, and then Broadgate in the city, as you say. These are really high quality environments. They have great public realm, good transport, high quality sustainable buildings, interesting bars, restaurants, coffee shops. And we're leasing exactly the same across all three of those because it's that quality that customers are wanting. And I think with Broadgate, it's probably over time repositioned itself in the city. It's at the northeastern edge. It faces into Spitalfields, into Shoreditch. And so it's kind of different environment and it offers all of those amenities that customers want today. So we're really comfortable with our investment in Broadgate. It's been one of our best performing assets over the last four or five years. So for us, it's somewhere we continue to want to invest and we will do so via our development schemes. Mm. I mean, that's a fair response. And I think anyone that's been there recently has seen its evolution. It's seen the degree to which it soaked up some of that creative energy from some of those adjoining districts. And I think the other point really with your campus strategy is that it's focused on those economies of scale and the network effect that you get by having so many smart people in one place, right? Totally. Those businesses want to cluster and co-locate with like-minded businesses. In Broadgate, we've seen traditional financial services attracting in other customers. FinTech wants to be next to the banks. And as you say, with Shoreditch, Spitalfields, we've had the creatives come down. And one area that's going to be really interesting for us going forward is Regent's Place and the Knowledge Quarter, that whole ecosystem that's happening there today. You've got the great research institutions like the Crick, UCLH, the Turing Institute, and lots of innovation or life science businesses want to be in that part of town. So that's something we're hoping to benefit with delivering lab space and it's leasing very well at the moment. Mm. And that life sciences piece is also something that's starting to anchor your Canada Water development as well, isn't it? You've announced just days ago the delivery of a huge amount of space down in Canada Water that's coming online very, very quickly. Yeah. It's early days. We saw that there was a gap in the market to provide lab space now. There's lots of unsatisfied demand. And one of the nice things... Well, there's lots of talk and not a lot of delivery. Yeah, there's lots of people are looking at this sector. They're bringing forward schemes, taking those through planning. So in reality, they're not going to deliver for five years or so. And If they deliver at all. If they deliver at all. We sense that 
there was an opportunity to deliver space now and a bit of an experiment down at Canada Water. We built an engineering faculty for a joint venture between King's College London, University of New South Wales and State Arizona University. And we did so with these modules and we built it in nine months. That's been up and running for two years now. And we saw an opportunity to do the same, but deliver lab space. We're on site at the moment, hoping to complete in May. I think we will hit that deadline and that'll be nine months delivery time and just started doing our first lettings because the space is available Mm. today, fully serviced. And that's what these businesses want. They don't want to be worrying about their facilities. They just want to get on and do their research. So if you can deliver today, I think you can capture that demand well. Yeah, it's a bold move. It's a punchy move. And Emma Cariaga is a big friend of Propcast. She's been on a number of times, one of the leaders on that project. A great, great talent within your business. And I think one of the interesting things about Canada Water from a life sciences perspective is you know just a stone throw from Whitechapel Hospital. You've got loads of great teaching institutions locally, other potential relationships with NHS research institutions. Again, that network effect is really possible there as it is in Regent's Place. Absolutely. I think Canada Water is probably different from Regent's Place. Regent's Place is an established location in life sciences and innovation. With Canada Water, we get a blank canvas and so we can deliver space today with the modular campus but also fast growing businesses can come to Canada Water and they've got the beauty of us being able to grow with them as we roll out future phases of that project very similar to what's happened in other areas like King's Cross you get a couple of anchor tenants and they're growing rapidly and they end up taking more and more space and that's the pattern that we think will be replicated at Canada Water. Yeah absolutely and when we had Stuart Grant on from Brookfield's Arc business not so long ago who own Harwell and this was one of the things that Stuart was talking about there so it's a very similar philosophy and it makes a lot of sense let's move on for life sciences so the campus strategy that you've been doubling down over the last few years it's really starting to pay some dividends now isn't it yeah it's been for the last four or five years we feel that we've been generating an outperformance from the campuses and It really comes down to where demand is strongest in London offices today, this bifurcation effect that people talk about, and the campuses deliver this high-quality environment. And where we get to add value is the flexibility that we provide tenants. So it's not a contractual flexibility. It's the fact that businesses can take space with British land, and if they're growing, we can find other buildings on the campus for them. But equally, some businesses need to shrink. We can take back space because we know the demand in the area. And you're creating those ecosystems, those like-minded businesses clustering together. And there is a pool in London today, I believe, to more central locations. Maybe one of the consequences of COVID, people working from home more, maybe thinking about living further away from London than they have in the past. So if businesses can be near key transport nodes and two of our campuses have crossrail just right outside all of them benefit from great tube connections and mainline stations and that is a benefit yeah yeah and do you think the london office market is being unfairly weighed down by some of the negative sentiment across the us where there's obviously a very different structures to the different cities and the markets and the way in which people live and use space and also the nature of those cities right england's London particularly, dotted with all sorts of theatres, gig venues, sporting venues, and it's a very different physical landscape than many US office markets. 
We think so. We've just come back from a real estate conference in the US, in Miami, and it's fair to say US... Spring break. Yeah, US... In, <laughs> it, well, it sounds like... Did uh, you get to see the Grand Prix? No, it sounds like a real Have joy. I'm, wrong? I'm not going to be able to persuade you that we were working very hard, but we were. Uh, I think you have 12 meetings a day. It's pretty intense. But it is a great way to see US investors and what's on their minds. And they are pretty negative on the office. They look at San Francisco, where vacancy is 20%. That's the recorded vacancy. If you take into account the gray space, it's probably closer to, to 40%. 40, yeah. But there is quite a big regional difference. Boston market is very hot. What's happening in the innovation sectors there is driving that. Lots of people have decamped to Miami, to Austin, San Diego Texas, as well. San Diego. And it's to your point, there's a big regional variation in those it's cities. Like places like Austin and, and San Diego are Super absolutely hot. gangbusters. Absolutely. And actually that resonated because to your point, London is quite unique in the UK. It's our dominant city. You can see that the population's still growing. It's where businesses want to be. And that did resonate with those investors. But when you're across the Atlantic, you look at what's over there and you almost extrapolate it to the UK. We've got far less availability of space and we've got this very strong bifurcation effect coming through at the moment let's talk about that i mean we referred to the bifurcation we've talked about the k-shaped recovery been one of our phrases over the years where the upper limb of the k is the good stuff that's getting better getting pricier and the lower limb being the stuff that's i getting haven't worse. heard about that it's a nice one I like it. i was at a conference recently and i did think about taking a box of special k with me and putting it on the table <laughs> next to me I, I decided not to at the last minute it have was, you copyrighted uh, that uh, I, I, well, I should do dominic grace was interviewing me about the political makeup of things right now it was a resi conference it looked a little bit humorless the crowd so i didn't think it was <laughs> going to go down like office people would have, would have been fine but, but let's get down the wormhole a little bit with the k-shaped recovery because again one of the other things that seems to be having a bit of a renaissance at the minute are retail parks so i'm interested to give you a bit of a shin kick on that strategy and try and understand the thinking behind it. And again, the specific question being, where's the value going to be, Simon Carter? Very happy to go through that and maybe sort of take you on a journey of how we've thought about it over the last couple of years. Yeah, absolutely, please do. So two years ago, we began to see that after coming down for a very long time, rents had reduced. Yeah. And then they felt like they were stabilising. Even though we were in pretty tricky times coming out of COVID, the team were confident that they could lease the space at the rents the market had got to, and customers were going to take more space. And that was the first in a long because period of time. Because there's a lot of drive-by pickup, almost it, urban logistics-type using uses. It, exactly that. We felt those themes were coming through, if I'm honest. Two years ago, it was about rents could stabilise, and you were going to be able to get an attractive yield. And so we thought about it as a value opportunity, and we started to buy additional parks. We we're also aware we were already the number one owner and operator of those, so probably had quite a good... So a scale of... Scale and good view on what was happening in the market. And then over the last two years, we've become more confident in those factors that you talk about. So parks seem to be the winning format in retail today, and that's because... They work for Omnichannel. They're great for click and collect. They're 
good for returning goods to store, shipping from store, and just people going into the store and buying. And we've seen a renaissance of the omni-channel retailers. They've performed well over the last couple of years from a relative perspective. And at the same time, rents are very affordable. If you look at your total occupational cost on a retail park today, as a proportion of your sales as a Mm. retailer, on average, it's about 8%. Some of those ratios across retail going back, I don't know, five, six years ago would have been in the high teens. And so to now be at 8%, it means you attract a really broad range of retailers. So you have the discounters, the grocers, the general retailers, the omni-channel specialists. And most retail parks are only 15 or 20 units. And that means that you can keep them full. And we've got to a position now where other than two retail parks that we're running down for logistics, we're going to convert them to logistics, we're 99% occupied. So that means many of our parks are full. Mm. And when they're full, rents start to grow. So for the first time in four years, we're growing the rents. I mean, that was a question I was going to ask you, was where the two rental curves start to cross over between retail rents and logistics. And that's always been the, well, not always, but certainly over the last five or six years, that's been the big question with retail parks, hasn't it? At what point is my income low enough to make a conversion worthwhile? Yeah, probably only in London would be my view on that. There'll be a small number of other locations that it works for. But in London, you've seen rents get to £20 in both formats. We bought a park next to our logistics scheme in Enfield with the view that we would convert that to logistics. I think we will in the fullness of time. But interestingly, as we started to think about running down the leases, there was already some vacancy. The retail team said, well, actually, we can fill these up higher rents than we'd originally thought retail could deliver and those rents would be in line with the logistics rents and so we might end up not converting it in the short term and spending a load of money that exactly that so you're getting that crossover in london and you're also seeing that retail parks are being converted for other uses not just logistics there's been a big trend to convert them to residential so the amount of floor space in london for retail is diminishing and so that's giving you that rental tension yeah no it's, it's interesting how the dynamics push and pull over the years and it's a very different space to when you were initially part of the British land machinery some years back, well, nearly 20 years ago now. Yeah. Uh, don't look at it, but... Um, a little bit less. A little bit less. 18 years ago. So, uh, yeah, I had 11 years at British land and then left in 2015 and came back in So, so John Ritblatt reportedly plucked you and identified you and brought you into the business. Yeah, yeah, I came in under John. I had the privilege of working for all three previous CEOs of British Land. So John, Stephen Hester, and then latterly Chris Grigg. Who had the worst temper? Oh, well, each of them on their moment (laughs) could be pretty fiery. But no, they were all great CEOs to work for. Brought different things to the business. Great deal doing. Chris, more latterly, was really focused on the customer. And that's hugely helped British Land and the strategy we're pursuing now. And that's been a great legacy. I do remember being shouted at once by Stephen Hester in a BPF meeting for something. I'm not going to put it on the tape. But (laughs) but Chris is a lovely guy. And I do think that that strategy on turning the word tenant to customer, which was something that British Land very much owned and was very much a North Star of, has been a big, big thing, not just for the business, but for the sector. And it clearly underpins all of your strategies right now. 
Absolutely. Becoming CEO, you think about what strategy you want for the business. And like anyone in that position, you think about your strengths. And I felt that our strengths were development, asset management, placemaking. And that's all about our focus on the customer and creating a great product for them. In the past, real estate maybe had just been looked at as an investment industry, but we're here to serve our customers. So we set about thinking, where can we deploy those skills most? Where will they give us an edge? And we wanted to be in markets where we perceived that there would be tailwinds and that we could realistically be market leading or number two in that market. And we've talked about the campuses. They're quite unique to British land. And I think they're really resonating with the customer. And there's that added benefit from what's happening in the innovation space. Retail parks, as I said, we are the number one owner and operator. And we felt there were tailwinds appearing. And then a newer market for us was the last mile logistics right in the centre of London. Let's talk about that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that was one where we could see the long-term trend well written about, well talked about was for e-commerce to continue to grow. Obviously exploded during COVID, has gone back to trend, but the long-term direction of travel, I think is clear. But also this idea of priority delivery. People talk about one hour, same day, and that's part of it. But we speak about priority delivery because it's not only about quick delivery, it's about delivery at a time that suits the customer. And you can do that much more easily by having centrally located facilities. And for London, a big thing is pollution and carbon. And we perceive that if we could put facilities right in zone one, where they didn't really exist today, and provide for fully electrified fleets from the parcel carriers, the e-commerce giants, then we could command some decent rents for that. The carbon story is a great one. And I think it's one we've been able to refine over time. Mm. We've got a consent in at the moment for a box underneath our Paddington campus. And we were trying to work out how best We could tell that story so that it would land with the local residents, with the planners. And we compared the carbon savings from the facility with the trees in Hyde Park. And over a day, the savings in carbon from having electric vehicles delivering to customers is equivalent to six times the carbon that the trees in Hyde Park sequester every day. And I thought that was pretty powerful. Yeah, it's a big old number. It is. And how is that market going to develop now that we've got a high risk-free rate? Because again, the yields on urban logistics have come down. They had compressed to quite a low bar. Really? They were 3%. They're probably now four and a half, five percent. That's the thing. If you're coming in at four and a half percent, where do you go from there? Yeah, we think we will be delivering for six percent type yeah. yields on cost. Yeah, rental growth, I think, will be three to five percent in the short term. It might be more like three percent because we've had such rapid rental growth. But I think because of those longer term fundamentals, there's unsatisfied demand today. We've also we've got rid of a lot of industrial space over the last 20 years. That's the story of London. So last 10 years, I think about three million square feet of space was added in London. So really quite limited compared with the demand and unsatisfied demand today. And if you can deliver those central facilities, you can capture that rental growth. So 6% yield on cost with some rental growth feels pretty good for that market for us. Mm. And how much of a prominence are you going to be placing on that 
over the coming years? I mean, where is that going to be weighted within the British land universe, same three, four, five years' time? It's a question we get asked a lot. And people say, could you do us a pie chart of the group? How much will be last mile logistics in London? We've tended to steer away from that. And that's not because we don't have conviction in it. It's more that we will likely create these facilities. We won't necessarily be the best long-term owner for them. If we create a facility, lease it well on a reasonably long lease, perhaps lower cost capital is a better owner of that. Yeah, but, in but terms, it's a value play, right? It's using those skills, going back to what we do well and the throughput we can put through the business. So could we be developing three to 500 million of last mile facilities a year absolutely so that could be the throughput and we might end up holding them because if we do those maths and look at the prospective returns and we see those are attractive relative to other uses of our capital we will absolutely hold those assets but what we're clear about at British Land I think these days is we will look to recycle pretty rapidly because there's higher returning uses of our capital. Yeah and what do you see as some of the other emerging opportunities. You were talking a little bit just now about electrifying fleets of vehicles, which is going to be a big, big challenge for some of the big box folk in the market, largely because of the short supply of land for those sorts of facilities. And also challenge of dealing with UK power networks to get enough juice out of the ground. Is that something you've been battling with at all? Totally. It came up with government the other day. One of the challenges of London, we've got the ESG agenda, we're looking to decarbonise our buildings. One of the most important things we need to do is to move to electrified buildings. Most of the buildings in London use gas. Gas doesn't benefit from what's happening with decarbonisation, whereas electricity does. Mm. And power is a challenge in London. It really is. So having locations where you can get access to the power. It's not that the power isn't being created in the UK. It's getting it to where it's, Piping it's needed. Piping it to the right place. Yeah, and look, that's the way I think about it, just in that simple terms. It's far more complicated. Yeah, we came that. back from holiday last week and saw Thames Water digging up Highbury for about the fifth time in the last 12 months. <laughs> So yeah, piping water, piping gas, piping electricity seems to be a problem for everyone. But you've just recently, I'll throw it in as an aside, because I saw it when I was checking through recent activity, that you've just agreed a great deal on one of your Paddington Basin buildings with Virgin O2, which is a fully electric building. Yeah, so that's three Sheldon, really nice. 82,000 feet? Big, yeah, 80,000 old... 80, square feet. I think they're taking 60% of the building. That's a refurbishment, so great from an embodied carbon perspective. And that's really mature, doesn't it, Paddington Basin? It really has. We bought it, I think, 2013, 2014. It was a good campus. It probably fallen a little bit behind, and some of the stuff we did was yeah, pretty basic. It was improving the public realm. If you recall, there's the canal frontage there. And I used to live there when I had my period. Not right there, but I lived on London Street on the other side when I was working at Heathrow, mainly because I, mean, I could get out of bed at half past seven, get on the Heathrow Express at eight o'clock and be at my desk for quarter past eight. That's an is, expensive way to get to work each day. Uh, I didn't tell the tax man about the free travel pass that the company gave me. Did they give you that? That's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so I remember Paddington Basin when there was literally nothing there other than there was that gastro pub in the middle. And I think you had the Orange headquarters at the end, but there was nothing else. And you wouldn't really go along that canal frontage. There was nothing happening there. So we did some basic stuff. We bought some barges, put some restaurants there. Also, 
the more complex things we've spoken about, some development, some good asset management, and changed the rental tone there. It went from a £50 location to an £80 location. There's and some great F&B as well along the canal. Those, really those nice. Places You've fantastic. been to the Cheese Barge? No, I haven't. I've been to the... I had breakfast with a colleague from ULI at one of the really... It was a very poncy scrambled eggs and toast, 20 quid scrambled. It was nice. It, it, I didn't feel ripped off afterwards. <laughs> um, but, but, but some really lovely places, and they've clearly got a good morning and evening offer there which i think is really critical for those sorts of employees that you're obviously looking to house yeah not only having across the course of the day amenity but also across the week we put a meanwhile use at the end of paddington and sometimes paddington's busier in terms of footfall on a saturday than sunday than it is on a monday or tuesday and you're getting that seven day a week location yeah it's really changing it around i mean could you live on a barge no, not with how messy my family is, it'd be impossible. <laughs> well, let's go back to, you touched on ESG, and it's obviously a big, big piece of your strategy and a very prominent challenge for everyone in the market. And now you've obviously committed to being net zero by 2030. You have been focusing a lot on refurbishment, as you mentioned. What are some of the other challenges that we're going to have to face into over the next two or three years? I mean, what grip does the industry have on the current carbon challenge? Are we being honest with ourselves about it? I think most businesses that have taken a look at their That's meant at the industry rather than British land. I'm not Yeah, no, I'm I think most you get businesses that, yeah, I do. And people understand the extent of the challenge, I think. It's dawning now. Twenty thirty is not very far away now, is it? No. We we set no. this strategy in twenty twenty and we're three years into it and there's a lot to do. Some of it can be done in quite a straightforward manner. Yes. Yeah, Replacing LEDs actually has a big impact on your carbon emissions and it has a really great payback period, better than many of the other investments you make in real estate. Put LEDs in and they'll pay for themselves in three years. That's a great return. Insulating buildings, relatively straightforward. As we talked about, turning buildings from gas to electricity is a bit more challenging. You need to get the power to the right places, but putting in air source heat pumps can work. So some of it is reasonably doable. I think the challenge is probably building at the kind of embodied carbon targets we need to hit. So today, if we refurbish a building, we can hit our 2030 target, but ground up development, that's really hard. And that's because we just don't have the materials. People are experimenting and lots of innovation is happening. But you're looking at different modular solutions, aren't you, down at Canada Water? We are. One of the things is low carbon concrete. You use that, it costs more, but it does reduce your carbon emissions. But you can't build at 500 kilograms a metre squared, which is the target we've set and most of the industries set with ground up development. You can get close, but you can't get there yet. So we do need to see more materials innovation. But I'm reasonably optimistic on that. Where there's demand from the customer, and all this is being driven by the customer, the customer wants net zero buildings. So property companies like ours are responding to that. And then the supply chain will respond. It will take time, but I'm a great believer in innovation and where there's a will, there's a way. And I think we will get there, but we shouldn't underestimate it. It's a big challenge. But in this area, you should really be bold and stretch yourself because it's the only way we're going to see progress. And does there need to be more government support for R&D in these areas? Because again, you're doing some great stuff. We had Toby Courthold on not so long ago. GPE are doing some interesting things on the refurbishment front as well. And there's a clutch of people. And I think this is an area where 
the industry should be patting itself on the back a bit more. And I think there's a lot of negativity around the ESG agenda. And it's very easy to throw stones. But actually, I wrote a column about this recently. It wasn't in Property Week, so it was in Building Design, but you can find it online. And the point I was making that article was actually... There is a lot of negativity out there, but there's some great things being done, some fantastic innovations being done, particularly around the refurbishment agenda. And as you say, Simon, your tenants, your occupiers, your customers, crucially your customers are now, they're the people, companies like Amazon that have got not just a 2030 net zero target, but a carbon negative pledge. These people want to be carbon negative. So the only game in town is going to be a refurbished building. For many of our customers, it's the biggest element of their carbon footprint certainly in our office campus business. So if we can help them reduce those carbon emissions, they will pay a bit more rent. And also those buildings are probably the type of buildings investors want to own. It's not only the customers, the institutional investors are getting much more discerning. Two, three years ago, we wouldn't really have been asked about the Briam certification or the EPC rating of a building. Mm. It was stuff that was done in diligence, but it wasn't front and centre of an investor coming in and us dealing with them to sell a building. I'm not going to look at this unless it's... Or there's a pathway there. I think... Most forward-looking investors are prepared to take on buildings that might be a C or D and they've got a route to upgrade because then they're helping solve the problem. But if they feel there's a building that doesn't have a way forward, that becomes really difficult. So office customers and office investors, I think, are there. In retail, retailers absolutely want to reduce their carbon emission. The reality is their stores are probably quite a small part of their carbon footprint. So it isn't front and centre of what they want to do. They're looking at the supply chain. But if they can save money on their bills... I think we can get them there. But we've spent quite a bit of time round tables. There's a lot of engagement to do it. But as I say, there's a lot of challenges retailers face today and they need mm. to prioritise. I mean, you're targeting a 50% reduction in embodied carbon, 75% reduction in operational carbon with a 25% improvement in whole building energy efficiency. Sorry to throw a bunch of numbers at you. Right. Those are, those are, so those are ingrained on my mind. Well, I'm, I'm sure you go to sleep thinking about these things but but, i mean it is a challenge but i guess it does then support the value of holding some of these campuses for the long term because i think people forget that carbon footprint is directly proportional to time and that you know a new building might have a better headline operational footprint to it but it's often going to have a hell of a lot more embodied carbon than something constructed 15 20 years ago yeah the right way to look at this sorry to get a bit techie is whole life carbon and To do that, though, sorry to interrupt you, Simon, but to do that, people have got to be honest about the lifespan. They have. They have. And so you want to be building, I think the whole life carbon assessment assumes a 60-year life for a building. That's going some. If you think about maybe what's happened for offices over the last 30, 40 years, you've seen buildings built in the 80s and 90s and be ripped down. So we do need to come up with buildings that are going to last longer and also be able to be disassembled and parts reused in the future. Mm. And that's kind of the area people are thinking about. On this topic, you've got an element of knocking down is bad. And I think in many instances it is, but you should also consider that whole life. And if you can build a new building that's going to be so much more efficient than the old building in certain circumstances Mm. it does make sense to knock down buildings well it's also about the usability of it that's the thing it's it's very easy just to think well what does the carbon footprint chart so but if it's a damp dark narrow 
low ceilinged building, no one's going to want to live. You've in got that. to make changes. Let's move on from the E in the ESG and talk about the S because you've got a £25 million social impact fund that you've established to 2030 that's going to supporting three different areas. Do you want to talk us through those? So you've got education, employment, and affordable space. There are three headlines within that strategy. But what's the thinking there? What are you trying to achieve? It's part of the strategy, and you'd expect me to say that. But why are you doing it? Why not spend that £25 million on putting a few extra solar panels on Meadowhall? Which we might do, but for us... The social element's really important. If you think of our campus business, we've been investors in those communities, somewhere like Regent's Place. We've been there for over 40 years. And we feel that our responsibility is to work with the local community to tackle the issues that matter to them. And that also makes good business sense. Our customers help us and join us in addressing some of those challenges and they set down roots in the local community and if they can do that they're more likely to be sticky customers for us but why education why employment those are the areas where we feel we can have most impact and also we can have an element of industrialization across the portfolio what do i mean by that is we've had successful programs with the national literacy trust where we've helped school-aged children create a passion for reading for life children that read outside of school have just better life outcomes and we've run this program for a decade and it's been really successful and us being able to do that across each of our places helps us but also helps the local community and then education if we can find high quality workforce that our customers are crying out for particularly on our retail assets and we can train them and give them the skills to really flourish then that's something that we feel we should be doing and you've helped about twenty nine thousand people through the educational partnerships which is an astonishing number and i think you know anybody listening to the news earlier this week will have heard a lot of chatter and again around antisocial behavior and dealing with supposed criminal behavior like graffiti but actually the root cause of many of these things is just a lack of services and community support for young people which i think it's great that british land can get behind that and do you think simon carter that this is maybe something broader that the wider property industry should potentially look at or get across all different communities and assets that it owns yeah and i'm just thinking of land aid when you say that land aid had its sleep out relatively recently and i think that's a fantastic charity because i think that it focuses on an area where we as an industry can have most impact it's providing space at the end of the day we're in the business of space and if we can provide housing and opportunities for the homeless that feels the right area to focus on so i think it's about choosing the part where you can have the biggest impact that's most relevant to your sector but not spreading yourself too thinly so we do our own programs around our assets that are that place-based approach to sustainability but equally when we're thinking about how we can help the industry more broadly, we're like, we'll go for Land Day because that's a great charity doing great things. And if we focus our efforts there, I think that can be pretty powerful, as mm. you've seen. So two things I just want to touch on before we go. The one sector we've not talked about is resi, not on any great level. And you're doing a lot of resi at Canada Water. It's a big, big element of that project. Again, where do you see that landing? You know, Canada Water, some could say, it's wonderful. Again, you've got the big, obviously the key is in the name, right? The water that's there. You're absolutely 
15 minutes from the West End. It's a great... You're doing a brilliant sales pitch for me. <laughs> it's, uh, well, I've, I mean, I went down there, uh, when did I was like, last there? Probably October, November. Emma was showing me around the sales suite. Which, but I remember going there a few years ago, there was nothing there other than the old Tesco car park. So it's changed a little bit. But uh, it's moved forward really, really quickly. But I'm interested, again, are you weighing up a question? I mean, you know, you're not going to reveal if you are, but are you weighing up as a business right now? Do we put more resi here? Do we go a little bit harder on the resi? Is, yeah. there, is that something that's... The team did a really lovely job on the planning consent at Canada Water. They took the view that it's a 10, 12-year project. Things are going to happen over that period of time. We had no well, You've idea. got an A-team, haven't you, with Emma Carriaga and Roger Madeline? Yeah, they're a fantastic team. Mr. Argent. Yeah, Mr. Argent. And look, it's going to be different from King's Cross, but Roger's taking a lot of the learnings he had there and applying them to Canada Water. And as you say, it's got the fundamentals, it's got the water, it's got the green space and the good transport connectivity. And I'm sure Roger... And you're keeping the print works. Keeping the print works. That's been a gift. We tried something and it worked really well. And who knew we would have the number one nightclub in Europe, maybe even the world, I think it was voted one day. A bit like Regent's Place. There's a couple of serendipitous... It's better to be lucky than smart often but in terms of that mix we've got pretty flexible planning consent at the moment we're sticking to our base plan which crudely is around 3,000 homes and about two and a half million square feet of workspace and then amenity leisure retail and I think that feels like a good balance it's always going to have balance but we've got the flex it's not just going to be all workspace and it's not just going to be all homes we're delivering a new town centre or new urban centre for Southwark and with that comes a lot of responsibility it's a privilege but a lot of responsibility and we want to create a great place so there's always going to be a mix of uses but there's flex there and the residential's going well at the moment it's a good location with that transport connectivity final question before we ask you about your music playlist oh I'm worried about that <laughs> um, um is do you think you get enough credit you talked earlier on in our conversation around asset management I'm wondering if people really understand what that means and what you do and whether they're valuing it appropriately. Probably not. It goes back to when we set the new strategy for the group. It's a real strength of British lands. Because it's an engine room to your it, business. It is absolutely that engine. and Because the world's moved on a lot, hasn't it? I mean, when you obviously were first within the business, lease lengths were, what, probably 15 years back then, I'm guessing. We're about six now, five or six, depending on which data set you look at. But it was very much a case of, well, you know, we'll come back in 10 years and put the rent up. That was the property market 20 years ago, wasn't it? Lease a building for 20 years and turn up two years before the end of the lease and say, do you want to extend your lease? And it was a tenant rather than a customer. So it's changed massively. Uh, Look, we didn't have flex, did we, 20 years ago, really? British Land's built a flex business, which I think can compete with the best of them. And that's because there is that capability in the organisation. It's not just about... I'm seeing Charlie Green tomorrow for breakfast, actually. So I will... We, uh... Yeah, ask him what he thinks <laughs> of the BL. They've got a great product as well. So, But this engine room, let's just spend a couple of seconds on that. Yeah, let's think about it across the business. A campus is not a lease the space for 20 years and turn up two years before the end of the lease. If you think about what you've got to do It's an operational organism. It is. We have a large number of people on site. We've got to make sure we've got the right public realm. We've got the right mix of 
retailers, coffee shops. You could just lease it to the person that's going to pay you the highest rent. But 10 years ago, you'd have a load of phone shops or betting shops. You know, that's not right for those campuses. So you're curating space. Mm. And you can imagine a huge amount of work goes into that. And then those relationships with those customers. We now speak to our customers on a very regular basis, not because we're thinking that they're immediately going to lease more space from us. But if you can create that dialogue with them, you can understand their future requirements and they can understand what British Land can do. Free intel for your business. Absolutely. If you know, if you think certain sectors are shrinking and certain are expanding, you do that. And then in the retail parks, that's been really roll your sleeves up asset management if you think of the challenges that covid presented retail having to close f&b having to close mm. we spoke to every single one of we our provided customers. tens of millions of pounds of business support as well we did we did and it felt like the right thing to do and we tried to do it in a selective way so some customers are bigger businesses in british land and we felt they should probably pay the rent but others, independent traders whose livelihood has been switched off overnight, we supported those. And just being able to take that granular view in a world where everyone was worried about what was happening to them. And our teams got to that really quickly. And Chris was the CEO at the time. And I can remember the two of us chatting about how proud we were of how the business responded to that. And then this new business of last mile logistics, that's requiring our development skills in London. It's something that hasn't really been done before. People haven't been converting car parks or doing multi-storey logistics. And that's about our knowledge of the planning environment in London, how we deliver low carbon buildings. We're using all of that. So I like the way you describe it as an engine. It's great. All right, you need to go and do more interesting and more important things and talk to me. But before Am I going to avoid having to do my playlist? No, no, no. We're doing the playlist now before you go. So we know you're a Foo Fighters fan. What else is on your playlist? What else do you rock out to with your son who will probably find this on Spotify and play it over the breakfast table? Yeah, it's it's trying to find the stuff that my son will listen to. But there is quite a lot of overlap. I've been uh, pretty impressed. I'm a kid of the 80s and 90s, so it's... Have you found any Depeche Mode album? Have you you got to that Yeah, I wasn't so much, but... Oasis, you know, that's there. My son enjoys that. You know, we can always belt out a wonder wall between us, even though I can't sing. We were talking earlier, Bruce Springsteen, I like, he doesn't like. It's probably a bit too dated these days, but yeah, what Bruce a will have his, all these things. It's like property, it's cyclical, right? Yeah, he'll have his way back and uh, yeah, hoping to see him in the summer. Right, well, we'll see you at the boss's gig in Hyde Park. Well, Simon Carter, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you. Thank you for making the time in your schedule to come in. And thanks for being a good sport on some of the robust questions, though. You know, these podcast they're totally unscripted people come in often willingly sometimes i have to drag them in but it's been brilliant to chat to you and really interesting to go right across the full gamut of subsectors of improperty and talk very honestly so thanks for giving us a really i've really enjoyed it thank you for having me so you can check out these propcasts on spotify amazon apple soundcloud wherever you get your podcasts from you can obviously continue reading propertyweek.com for the latest news and there's a property week logistics conference coming up in may that you should definitely go and buy some tickets for if you're into that part of the market thank you once again to simon carter chief executive of british land i've been andrew teacher managing director at montford real estate thank you very much for listening do send us your suggestions comments and requests and we'll see you again very very soon thank you bye-bye